You're listening to The RN Mentor, a podcast designed to document and bring you the work and experience of some of the most influential nurses in our profession. We will be sitting down and having a discussion with the leaders of today's nursing world as they share their work, how they navigate their nursing path, and their views on the future of the profession. My name is Ali Tayeb. I am a registered nurse, United States Navy veteran, a Jonas Veterans Healthcare Scholar, and your host for The RN Mentor. Welcome to the first episode of season seven of the RN Mentor Podcast. I am extremely excited to be joined today with Dr. Randolph Rash. Uh, he is a professor and the ninth and immediate past dean of the Michigan State University College of Nursing. Dr. Rash has over 30 years of experience teaching in the DSN, MSN, DNP, and PhD programs. He has published and presented in the areas of primary care, HIV risk reduction, and diversity in healthcare education and clinical practice. Dr. Rash was the first statewide director of nursing services programs director in the Tennessee Department of Corrections and led the development of the Quality Assurance Program for Health Services. Working with another Vanderbilt alum, Dr. Rash had the opportunity to design and implement a system of healthcare for the Tennessee Department of Corrections that had not existed previously. Dr. Rash has an exemplary history of public service. Notably, he currently serves by appointment of the governor of Michigan as a member of the Michigan Coronavirus 19 Racial Disparities Task Force, chairing the Primary Care Connections Workgroup of the task force. A fellow of the American Association of Nurse Practitioners and a distinguished scholar, and a fellow in the National Academies of Practice and fellow in the American Academy of Nursing, Dr. Rash holds the distinction of being the first African-American male graduate of the nursing program at Andrews University and the first African-American male master's prepared nurse practitioner, a graduate of the FNP program at Vanderbilt School of Nursing. He is the first African-American male to hold the PhD in nursing and was the first African-American male public health nurse in the state of Michigan. Other honors include distinguished alumni of the School of Nursing, the University of Texas at Austin, the Lulu Wolf Hasenblatt uh, award for Distinguished Career in Nursing, Vanderbilt University School of Nursing, and the Dr. Jean Transbarger Writing Award, the American Association for Men in Nursing. One of his favorite awards, however, is Colonel Aide-de-Camp, Governor's Staff of the State of Tennessee Award. So welcome to the show, Dr. Rash. Thanks. It's good to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I'm glad Absolutely. to join you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for making the time. And just for our, so our listeners know, that is not the full bio and work of Dr. Rash. I shrank it down for the purpose of the podcast, but the full bio is available on the RN Mentor podcast for you to look at. Uh, so please take the time uh, as I have not done your your career justice by shortening your bio for the podcast. Um, so thank you again for being here. Um, 
first question right out the gate, how did you get started in the world of nursing? Interesting question. When I was growing up, um, I always had farm toys and stuff like that, but my parents gave me and my sister little kits. Hers was a nursing kit. Mine was a physician's kit. I don't know why, because I don't think either one of us expressed any interest in that, but they gave them to us. And um, I guess it was in the back of my mind, and I'd always planned to go to medical school. But when I was in um, high school, and I went to Andrews University Academy, which is also where I went to college, Andrews University, our guidance counselor, I went in to talk to him, and I said, you know, I'm thinking about going to medical school, but I'm thinking about doing nursing first. Can I do that? And he said, oh, yeah, all you have to do is take the prerequisites for medical school. And I had forgotten he was actually a, a nurse anesthetist who had come <laughs> back to be a guidance counselor. So I started at Andrews University in the Bachelor of Science program in nursing. And I actually technically have a Bachelor of Science degree with a major in nursing. Right. So I don't have a BSN, but what I have probably is more nursing education undergraduate than most people because we had three years. But when I started it, of course, um, like most people, I didn't know what nursing was. And as I, you know, I thought, well, you see the stereotypical thing. And um, as I started it, I thought, oh, I like this fine. I'll just stay with this. So I graduated in nursing and it was, you know, I was saying to a colleague through um, all of the pandemic thing that um, I have looked at my colleagues who are out, you know, practicing in hospitals and stuff and what we've done in schools of nursing. And all I can say is I'm so proud of nurses and so grateful that I chose that career path. You know, you don't, I, I, people sort of look at my career and go, oh, you did this, this, and this. And I always say to them, I didn't plan it. I just wandered from this to this to this. So <laughs> uh, it's interesting that you you mentioned that. That's actually a very, uh, it's, it's, more, it's a more common story than most people actually, uh, you know, kind of uh, give it credit to because a lot of us have, uh, you know, kind of, dipped our toes in the world of nursing and loved it and just stayed on uh, as opposed to uh, other ways of sort of sort of looking at uh, uh, planning to go into the world of nursing from a young age of like three years old. So oh, yeah. a lot of us was like, let me try it. And then we loved it. And I wish uh, more people would not, not necessarily try it, but like have it like more, we need to probably do a better job at being more purposeful as to how we recruit and promote at a younger age for the world of nursing. Cause so many of us kind of went into it, not really knowing what we're doing and then loved it and stayed on and doing great things. So. I think so. I think one of the things I've uh, learned in doing recruitment, especially for students into school and all that is most people go into nursing because they know a nurse. I actually didn't know a nurse, but my next door neighbor who I grew ahead, grew up with was four years ahead of me. And she became a nurse and she went to Andrews University, which is a religious school. So at the time that I went through, there was actually a consecration service for Vespers, extremely moving service. But anyway, they capped all the nurses and um, for the for the boys, <laughs> we got our chevrons were pinned to our shoulders and she pinned the chevron to my shoulder. But it was, uh, 
I, I probably got the best of nursing education because they hadn't thrown the baby out with the bathwater, which I think they did when they shifted from the diploma program. And what I got was the best of what a diploma education would be and the best, I think, of what a baccalaureate program would be. So we learned, but we also learned to apply. And we were socialized. Um, we were socialized to be proactive, you know, not to be servants, <laughs> you know, to to be integrally involved with patient care, including our discussions with physicians and other providers. I think we've we may have slipped a little with that, but it was really strong in the program that I was in. So, yeah, I got there. I didn't get there the usual way, which is most people know a nurse and that's how they they get to it. I didn't really. I didn't know a nurse, except for my guidance counselor. But when he advised me, I didn't realize he was a nurse. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, absolutely. I, I, a lot of people have that nursing influence. Uh, so it's very interesting that you, you bring that up. You know, I think the other thing I would say, I think I would like to comment the other piece you said about our, um, I would say, responsibility of getting people to understand what nursing is. And we had a tremendous opportunity during the pandemic uh, while I was dean. So when you were talking about links, there are links all over about me giving um, interviews. And um, one of the things we saw in the pandemic was that the numbers of people who applied to nursing went up. And the other thing I thought was really interesting was that the number of people who applied for nursing as um, second career went up as well. And, and what I understood, what our, our um, student affairs office who handled all of that, because they were talking to them. And what happened was during the pandemic, people really got to see how nurses thought and how what they did was based on their ability to think and plan and think about care. And they they heard so many of them saying, oh, this is what I wanted to do, and I wish I'd known it beforehand. So they really got a sense of what nurses is, what nurses are, and what it is beyond what they see or think nurses do. Um, I, 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 pre I appreciate that. Um, uh, so I'm going to veer off my normal sort of questioning pattern uh, since you brought this up. What are we doing as a, as a profession to really address this shortage that has seems to be around forever has been around forever mm -hmm. uh, what are we doing and what do we need to do better in order to make sure that we have the right amount of nurses for the future of the profession moving forward so i'm going to say something radical and people will come after me for it maybe but it was a change in thinking that i was that uh, came about for me from talking to people who really valued nursing but were not nurses one of the things I think is that we have to have a realistic idea of how many nurses we actually have to have. So I was a part of um, a nurses roundtable. I was the only dean there. All of the rest of them were CNOs from around the country. And it was a small group, maybe about 14, 15 nurses that met regularly, twice a year. And um, they would bring people in to, to speak with us and do that programming. And one of the people they brought in one year was had been involved in, um, oh, Kaiser Permenti kind of things, when that stuff, I'm blacking on the name. But he was, what he was talking about, um, he was talking about medical practice, but he said hospitals were doing 
making a mistake in buying these physician practices because the way medicine was being practiced was going to leave them in the hole because they didn't need them. But we got to talking and he said to, he said to me in one of the between sessions, he said, you all, you all have too many nurses. <laughs> and I said, no, we don't have enough. And he said, no, you don't have enough of the kind you're talking about. And hard on the heels of that, I was on an airplane and I was sitting between an attorney who, HMOs, that's the word I'm thinking about, an attorney who was involved with HMOs when they first started and now worked for a government. And then, and the other guy was a vice president for a consulting, a large consulting company to health systems around the country out of DC. And they both said to me, you have too many nurses. And I said, well, we don't, blah, blah, blah. He goes, yeah, you do. He said, you need nurses who can think and plan care and do continuous care. And they have to know how to give direct patient care. He said, but they don't have to do all that care. You can have other people who can do that care under the supervision of a nurse. And actually when I graduated, that was the worry we were educated and the way we practiced. We had nursing assistants and orderlies because I grew up in Michigan and they, they were distinguished. Orderlies were men and nursing assistants were women, but they did the same thing. But what he said was, these are people, if you hire the right people, they do high touch and they can follow directions. And it doesn't mean that the nurse wouldn't be involved in touch too, but they would be doing the part that the other people couldn't do. And he said, so what you're doing is you're trying to make sure that you have enough nurses out to do all of this direct care when you need assistance to do the direct care. And, there, and you have to be able to decide as an educated nurse, when do I need to do this care? Because so, I'm establishing a relationship with the patient, right? And a lot of the ways we establish that relationship is in that care. But it doesn't mean that other people can't be involved in helping take on the load of that care. So I think one of the things we have to really think about is think about nursing, where we've come to from, why is nursing in the academy, and what is it that a nurse can do, and what kinds of assistance can we use in getting that work done. Um, so I know that one of the things that's happening in health systems around the country and one that we were particularly involved with, they were already beginning to think this way. I think the other thing that we need to do then is we need to be much better connected with our colleagues who are in direct practice. So we've become very academic and sort of distanced from what was actually happening in systems ways. You know, we have faculty who are out there, they're doing that. But I think we're getting a much better conversation between our partners who are in direct practice and partners who are doing education, which I think is only going to benefit um, what nursing education looks like and help, I think, rethink where we are in terms of the shortage. So I think we do have a shortage, but I think that because of what our expectations are, um, some of that is is uh, maybe more than we think it is. And I, I haven't settled on it, but I've been thinking about what is the gift of nursing? What is it that we can do? And what do we do that, um, that puts a strain on nursing? You know, yeah. many years ago before I started, the work that a ward clerk did, the nurse did too. 
you know, they also used to mop the floors and do all of that stuff when we went. <laughs> That's not exactly what a nurse needs to do. And I think we're at that point again to really think what is, and it's not value added. I hate that term. <laughs> <clears throat> you know, when we talk about nurse practitioners, we talk about value added. It's not value added. If a nurse practitioner is working and practicing as a nurse, it is the value of being a nurse. Right. So, yeah, it I've gone sense. all over the place with that answer, but no, 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 no. It makes sense because when I was in the in the Navy, uh, our our unit, uh, our, my first duty station was the Naval Medical Center in San Diego, and I worked on a thirty six bed unit, um, and we had one charge nurse who was, you know, uh, usually one of the uh, Navy Nurse Corps officers, <laughs> and then we had three nurses on the unit that were responsible for somewhere around like nine or 10 or something like that. Um, and then each of them had like one or two corpsmen assigned to them. Yeah. And the corpsmen had a huge, like we could do medication administration. We could do a lot of things, mm -hmm. but we were not the nurse. The nurse would be like doing all the primary assessments on the patients, doing all the higher level like we couldn't do certain things, like we couldn't pass out any um, narcotics, we couldn't do blood transfusion. So there's limitations to our scope on the <clears throat> hospital, but, but it was definitely um, a different model. And I want, and you're right, I think we need to really think about, because um, even with nurse ratios, uh, I know like when California went to nurse ratios, I'm like, hey, great nurse ratios. And I think that was a good thing. But at the same time, the hospital took away some of the resources, yeah. less CNAs, no LVNs on the hospital side. They got rid of LVNs on the hospital side altogether. Um, so we lost resources. So I don't know if we really gained anything other than, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, it, it's one of those things that I always question is, ratios are good because there's there is a point where i think nurses are, get overwhelmed with the number of patients right. and they just they, if this the care becomes unsafe but at the same time what does it look like this what does the support look like when you have less patients right um so i think I, the other thing we have to think about is um it's something that a lot of universities are not paying attention to but um universities are probably going to have to downsize. <laughs> and part of that is the actual numbers in the population. So the competition for people who are interested in nursing is going to become greater because there are going to be fewer numbers of students, yep. right, to be educated as nurses or lawyers or anything so what what is it we're going to have to do so that that perception of shortage is going to become even more acute because of the absolute number of people that are available for any kind of education right right and that and that makes and that, that makes sense and and we've seen we've already seen a downward uh sort of trajectory since the pandemic of how many uh, students are actually allowed in hospitals, right? Yes. Um, so that is, that within itself is a bottleneck that we that maxes us out in the number of students we can actually take in. Well, so there's a, I'd like to comment on that too. So the other issue was that had to do with leadership on the other side, right? Right. So why in a pandemic would you restrict the number of nursing students that you were taking <laughs> in? And some of them were being very progressive and saying, wait a minute, 
if you are a student, you're actually doing nursing. The level of care that you give as a student has to be the level of care of a registered nurse. Right. And that's why you have registered nurses as faculty supervising them as well. So by shutting them out, you decrease the number of actual people who could provide nursing, but then you did something in the long run that really hurt because then they started getting the shortage of nurses who were quitting mm -hmm. because of what they were experiencing, or they were getting the attractive offers from travel nursing right. and they would drive travel, join travel nursing, even though they were assigned to the same hospital afterwards. Right. Right. Exactly. And then they were coming to schools saying, wait, where are the graduates going? Where are the graduates going? Well, the graduates were going to those systems that welcomed them as students. Yep. And they looked at the others and say, I don't know who you are and I don't care. So, you know, that's a short-sighted thing that was happening in practice. And fortunately, there were folks who were very progressive in saying, yeah, we, we want them here. And, you know, it, within schools, there were students who were concerned about going and faculty too, because faculty didn't want to take students out there. And my point was, it's nursing. Right. There is no difference between your last day in school and the next day you're practicing and being exposed to this. Nurses are exposed to um, infectious diseases. The issue is, are they given the equipment they need to protect themselves and protect patients and all of that? But it's a risky profession. You should know that going in and you're gonna be exposed to it as a student. So anyway. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my only concern at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, and I and I advocated for us to hold our student nurses uh, back, was primarily because of PPE. Yes, uh, hospitals were not able to provide the protective equipment appropriately for our students, and I said we can't send them into the environment saying sorry. Uh, you don't, we don't have enough stuff for you. And we didn't exactly know what transmission was looking like, right. uh, right. how it was airborne, was it droplet, was it like nobody ever was guessing at that point. Uh, and, and so that in the beginning, I was like, you know, once we figure this out and we can provide them the proper equipment, yes, absolutely go in. It's an infectious disease, other infectious disease we've dealt with, but yep. we've dealt with them with the proper equi uh, protective equipment. Well, and so to your point, that's actually the responsibility to nurses, whether or not they're registered, licensed, or they're students. Right. That responsibility is response is to nurses across the board. I always, you know, as I said that, I always think of students as our colleagues. Yes. They're just not at the point of their career that we're in. But right. we should treat them as colleagues, not children. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And oh yeah, I'm I'm hundred percent on board with that. Uh because uh, you know, I you know, like terms like baby nurse or anything oh. like oh my god, it just drives me drives me nuts. Uh so uh, so yeah, I, I agree. Like these are adult individuals; they need to be treated like adults because some of them do have some growing up to do during mm -hmm. the school of nursing. Uh, but that's how that that's actually when we treat them like adults, they start acting more like adults. Well, um, I was I was I think I was about I think I was twenty years old. I was early into college, yeah. so I was a twenty-year-old in terms yeah. of maturity. But I was educated and trained, and I don't think training is a bad thing. I think it's 
education is the foundation of the training. Right. But I was trained to behave like adult, an adult on the floor, and I was right. a charge nurse. Right. I could go out and be a silly 20-year-old when I wasn't at work. But exactly. at work, I knew what to do and I knew how to think. <laughs> exactly. Like there's responsibilities you have on the unit. Once you're off the unit, then, you know, you can yeah. go back and do, you know, be with your friends and do whatever it is you're going to do. So, yeah, I agree. Um, I want to, so I'm going to put us back on the track again a little bit. Uh, okay. You have some incredible firsts in your life. Uh, how was that for you being the first African-American in so many, like you're a pioneer, right? And, and it's one of the reasons I definitely wanted to have you on the show. You are a pioneer uh, in the world of nursing. Uh, and how was that transition for you going into the various roles and uh, education programs as being the first African-American male individual? You know, um, Every time I think of it, I can't really tell you. But <laughs> so when I was an undergrad, I, I didn't know it. It was the Black Student Association at the university. And I went to a small religious school who said, we think you're the first African-American male to graduate in nursing. And I went, that cannot possibly be true. But they researched <laughs> it and um, they had a thing. And anyway, they gave me a plaque about it. And then when I, so what I know from, I think my experience was shaped by the fact that it was a religious school. And I was I was raised as a Seventh-day Adventist and only went through Adventist schools all my life. And I think because of that, the way the university was at the time, I don't know what it's like now, but at the time, all of us were educated to be, uh, to serve. If you were an, an English major or a history major, nursing, business, whatever, you were educated to serve. And the faculty, they never said this, but I could tell when I look back, they saw their role as serving students to, mm. to achieve. And because of that, at the time, I didn't really see any difference. I couldn't, the difference I saw was how they dealt with us as men, not our race. And some of that was because of, um, well, it was sort of weird. I remember being in med surge and having a patient that was in a gynecological, the issues they were in for that. Um, so I didn't do that care on the patient, but I still had the patient. I just didn't do the physical <laughs> care. That was kind of weird because when I got into labor and delivery, all bets were off and we did everything. <laughs> we did everything. So, you know, I remember we were supposed to observe a delivery. And when I got there, they would introduce me to the obstetrician as the student. And he, it, every one of them would stand up and say, sit. So I never got to observe. I, I delivered every baby I was supposed to observe. Oh, wow. But um, but I know that they kind of made adjustments because we were men. Be, but that was mostly based on how they thought the patients would perceive us. But like I said, in labor and delivery, all bets were off. Um. I was the first African-American male public health nurse in Michigan. And as I look back on it, I realized I was probably the first male public health nurse, <laughs> not just African-American. Um, and I worked in inner city Benton Harbor. The patients were white, black, inner city. The white patients who were older had moved up from the South. 
So they were Southerners. And then we were a combined agency. So we did home health too. And our home health patients were all across the socioeconomic status. So we were going into, you know, upper middle class homes and, and all of that. And nobody treated me any differently that I could tell. Um, I went to Vanderbilt and Vanderbilt is a Methodist technically, nominally, but but it's it doesn't work that way. But I had the same kind of faculty. So when I got there, they said, we think you're the first African-American male. And I go, you got to be kidding. But they always rejoiced in it. And um, the same thing when I got to to uh, Texas. And a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to give the commencement address at the School of Nursing at Texas. The dean is a very close friend. We graduated with our PhDs together. But she introduced me with all of those first. And as she said it, it was the first time I'd ever heard anybody say it. I had told it. But I listened, as I listened to her, I realized something and I got up and I said, you just heard Dean Alexa say that um, I was the first African-American male in all of this. And I said, as she was talking, it's the first time I realized, and I, I try not to get emotional about this, but I was educated by white women. And the lesson there is, because after I got to the teaching and out in practice, especially in teaching, I could see people being treated differently. And I could see minority men being and women being treated differently in ways that were obviously unfair. But what I said to them was, I, um, it was the first time I recognized I was treated, I was educated by white women. And all of those women that I was, because, you know, I went to a small school, so I knew who they were. Um, I realized later they didn't see me as a black male. They saw me as Randy. Mm. And I said to the class, the graduating class, and I said, I can look back and realize I must have driven them crazy. <laughs> but they, you know, I would show up because I, I wear six and a half shoes. So I had to special order shoes because <laughs> they had to be white. So they were Navy shoes. And I got tired of them. So I'd show up in brown earth shoes blue suede spectators, they never said a word. They picked their battles, you know, and so I realized that they really educated me as an individual. I was blessed in that way. But because of that, what I did begin to see was how others were being treated. I hadn't been treated by that, but I could see that they were looking at men differently, that they could be looking at Black men differently, you know, and I'd have to say, they think differently, you know, they may be, they're not going to behave like a woman, um, so let them be, help them learn who they are, you know, but there's still, there's still people who think men shouldn't be in nursing, I think, uh, yeah, thankfully yeah. that's, <laughs> A lot of that's gone. I'll share a story. I was at UNC Chapel Hill and I was doing um, undergraduate community health, public community health, which we did in a home health agency. And there were two guys assigned to the group. And one of them was out campaigning to get all the men in my group, which they didn't do. Um, so when we met, I said, well, let's talk about this because I know Jason wanted all the men. Why is that? And they said, because you're the first male faculty member we've ever had. And this happens, this happened to me a lot. I would, because when he said it, 
we talked about it. And then I asked a question. I said, well, ladies, what did you think about it? And they said, well, we were excited too. And I said, why? And they said, because we've never had a male faculty either who was a nurse. And I said, and I didn't ask them. They said, we've never had one either. And we figured you do it differently. And I, it was the first time I ever thought about it, but I thought about it. I said, yes, I do do it differently. And I realized in nursing, we have to quit equating how women do nursing as being nursing, right? And you have to let every individual bring their whole selves to it. So they do nursing professionally, but they also do it the way they would do it. And that I think helps with whether or not you're a black man, a man or a woman of color, a woman from another country, any of that. What is it that you need to be a good nurse? And then the creativity that comes from the individual and how they do nursing. I think I was fortunate because in the way I was educated, I did get that. Um, but I could see once I became an educator, I could see that that wasn't happening and, and realized how lucky I was. You know, when I did the PhD, I'm, I'm educated and trained to do qualitative and quantitative research. But as a family nurse practitioner in a PhD program, and there weren't that many around at the time, I actually wrote a theoretical philosophical dissertation, which is unusual for any nurse doing a PhD to do. But uh, so, uh, you know, I don't know if that makes sense. I can look back now and see uh, minor instances that things happened to me, but I don't I can't see the things systematically happen to me, but I think that was entirely because of the places that I went to school. If I'd gone to school someplace else, I knew that it would be, I, I realized later that it would have been a very different experience. So I'm grateful. And I've used that, I think, to try to, especially well, work with all students, whatever their color is, uh, whatever their gender is, but to bring that same kind of openness to your classmates and to the patients that you were working with to provide nursing care. Yeah, very true. And, and I hope you realize, uh, and and I want to say, I, I again, yeah, I hope you realize that your firsts uh, were 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 exemplary for a lot of individuals that followed. Uh, so even and even though you were like lucky to have some faculty that saw you as the individual and not the color of your skin, but definitely a, a pioneer and a change that needed to happen, and you 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 were brave enough to take that first step. Well, and then let me say this about that too, because um, as I begin to realize that, then I start coming in contact with people who who knew who I was and were inspired by that, which inspired me, you know, I just go, wow, you know? So then I think, like I said, we were educated and socialized for service. And so I see that as a responsibility to talk to the men who particularly see that and, uh, but, but women too, as well. Um, but I and I um, so I I see it and I see it as um, I recognize the pioneering nature of it, and um, I think one of the things that also can be learned is how we put things out in the world. Some years ago, a couple of years ago, because of the 
the political climate. I was talking to the provost who I reported to, and uh, she's from Tennessee, a little rural area in Tennessee. Um, so she's white, blonde haired, all of that. And we got to talking and I said, well, you know, when I worked in Tennessee in the Department of Correction, I drove all over the state by myself. And for years, I looked way too young. I looked like I was 16. I had a beard, so I looked older. But I drove up in East Tennessee where there are no people of color, maybe some Native Americans in little towns. Um, and I never had a problem. And she said to me, she looked at me and laughed and said, I know my peeps. And that has more to do with you than it had to do with them. So I think two things. One is I'm fairly open and friendly. I'm I'm technically an introvert, like on the Myers-Briggs, but I'm gregarious. Wears me out, but I can do it. And so I'm like that with anybody. And um, there are two things. I think people respond to that. So if you if you come in with fear and defensiveness, they're going to respond that way. And then the other thing I say is they always look at me, they always look at me and go, this fool does not know what danger he's in. We're going to have to take care of him. <laughs> Even if they were racist, for some reason, they're like, okay, let's make sure he, you know. Yeah. So uh, I try I, to share that too, because I think you have to be on guard and you have to protect yourself, but you can't let that be the primary thing because that's how you're going to be viewed and that's how people are going to respond to you. Yeah. I agree. Um, I, I appreciate you uh, mentioning uh, the piece about men in nursing because um, one of the reasons I appreciate and I make sure like that this podcast not only has diversity but it has uh, but I have the opportunity to talk talk to to speak to some men in nursing because there aren't that many of us around. Yeah. And uh, so my question for you would be uh, other professions who have been primarily male or female have done a really good job at diversifying uh, um, the genders, however mm -hmm. people identify. However, nursing has not had the, uh, uh, from my perspective anyway, and I think the data will support it if I look it up we haven't really made a that much gains as far as increasing the percentage of men in nursing um what is your what what do you think we need to do or what is your opinion of why we're not attracting more men into the profession uh so i think that the men that are attracted and do it see it as great profession and they come into it and they just deal with the stuff they run into right so i mentioned um, that we need to be clear about what it is that nurses do and not assume that how women behave in a space is how men are going to behave in a space. Right. And, and so there, you know, some of it is just an understanding of, of that. And uh, so I used to do a lot of work in diversity uh, consulting and all of that. And I would get to the start getting to the end of the day. And I said, so there's a group that we've left out in terms of diversity in nursing. And I could see the wheels turning and they think, well, we talked about men, we talked about women of color, people from other countries, blah, blah, blah. And then I'd wait a minute, I'd wait like a minute. And then finally I'd say, it's white women. And they would all go, we're, over, we're white women are overrepresented in nursing. And I go, no, it's a certain type of white woman 
that's overrepresented in nursing. There are other women who would be great nurses, but they look at what they think nursing is and go, oh, hell no. And so <laughs> we, have, we have got to look at, at that piece. And so I think those women who go say, I wouldn't think of nursing, it's the same thing of men. And in men, they're saying mostly women do it, but it's the language that's used. I remember in my undergraduate program, um, the, the chair of the department was giving a lecture and she was talking to us about working with patients. And she called this out. I finished in 1974. She called this out. She said, you know, and you go in and say, and now it's time for our bath. And she said, and I want to look at, and I always look at them and go, oh, are you joining me in the bath? There's languages that, languaging that we use that we need to just stop. And it comes from, it comes from how women are socialized, you know, and we need to start thinking about the language that we use and we need to be objective in how we are working with students. So I've seen students being dinged because they're not acting like a white woman, frankly, you know, and it's not all white women that act like that, but there's a certain group that, that the culture persists from generations, generations. And you have to actively think, what am I saying and how am I saying it? And how does that affect a student? You know, it's the same thing as um, um, uh, what's, um, bias. You know, you have to listen to how you're saying. And, and I've seen men who end up talking in a certain way because they were, they got socialized to think, if I want to be successful, some of them know it. Most of them, it's unconscious. They start taking on this way of talking. But if I'm going to be successful, this is who I have to deal with. And I'm going to have to behave in a way that makes them comfortable and not feel threatened. Right. We got to get over it. You know, this isn't about nursing, but years ago, when I was in my 20s working in the prison, there was a young Black man walking ahead of me in Nashville at night. <clears throat> and um, he probably was only like four years younger than me. But I, re I remember I crossed the street. And thank God when I crossed the street, I realized that I was crossing the street because I was afraid of him. And I crossed back and I thought, where did that come from? I clearly grew up as a black male. And I know that in the African-American community, black men are loving, affectionate, all of that kind of stuff. That was my experience, but I got somewhere, got socialized to be afraid of this young man I crossed back across the street. You know, I think I was telling you, I just <clears throat> was looking at the funeral of Tyree Nichols who was beaten to death by black men. So they got socialized to be afraid of him. But when you learn about his life, and I just heard about a, the memorial service of his friends in California, who were black, white, all of that, they were skateboarders and he was a leader and heard them talking about him. We have to undo how we think about that and it's fear. I mean, I remember we got to Vanderbilt and my FNP faculty were placing students and they were gonna place this guy someplace. And I went, they said, oh, we can't put a little while ago. Why not? So I started undoing how they were placing men because of their perception about, about men.
you know, and even the language, the boys, they're not boys, they're young men. <laughs> they didn't call the girls the girls. <laughs> Um, I, I agree. I mean, I've had I've had people who've I've had nurses in my in my career who've been in a position of authority over me who have uh, who have said like men cannot provide the same compassion. Uh, they cannot be provide the same amount of caring as a mm -hmm. uh, as a as a female nurse could. Uh, and and it's been it's been very or men even I've had one even say men don't belong in nursing. Right. Uh, so, so. <laughs> you know, there's the languaging. I have a great problem with calling nursing the caring profession because caring is a characteristics of, of human beings. We all nurses who don't give a damn. We all know physicians who care tremendously. It's the quality of being a human being. And when, and, and so I used to talk to young men, I'd say, so how's it going here? And they, you know, they'd say, oh, it's going well, blah, blah, blah. And then eventually they said, you know, they don't want us here. And I go, well, why do you say that? And they say, well, it's very subtle. But when they talk about caring, the clear, clear, clear implication is that men can't care. Well, it's not a it's not a characteristic of gender. It's a characteristic of humanity. So quit claiming it as something that's unique. Those are the kinds of things I'm talking about that have to be undone. And it also has effect on nursing. So I'm working on a book about the discipline of nursing, right? From a structure of what disciplines are. When you don't understand that, then you come up with these soft kind of descriptions that in, in some in are disadvantaged to the profession and how we progress and what it is we want to accomplish as nurses for the human beings that we care for. And I'm intentionally saying human beings, not patients. When we call people patients, we see them in a certain way. But if our subject matter is human beings, that's a different way of learning not just in school, but once you get out, how do you continue to learn and develop knowledge as a clinician, not an academic or a researcher? How do you develop knowledge as a clinician about human beings, which is who we care for, who become our patients, but we have to think about how do we learn about human beings and apply that in the care of patients? I will say, the way there are a lot of things I would critique about medical education, but one thing that medical education encourages is, they may over-encourage it, <laughs> is the, develop, the development of knowledge, right? The concern is they do it without any rail, rails on it, you know? But, but I think it's something we could learn that freedom and creativity in, in what we do in nursing. That's great. Uh, thank you for that. Somebody's going to shoot me for this. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But it's true. And, and I think it's one of the things uh, from a nursing perspective, uh, we have been siloed for such a long time uh, that I think there's a lot of different disciplines that we can actually borrow from and adapt uh, and make it better. Uh, because I think it's one of the richness of having the diversity in the workforce. It's one of the richness. Um, I teach a lot. Uh, I've taught a lot in the past for the accelerated bachelor's programs or the uh, master's yes. entry level programs. 
And I love those students because they bring this other richness to the profession um, from the prior experience, whether you're a musician, an engineer, mm -hmm. or a dancer, or whatever the case may be, right? A historian, whatever it is, because they bring that other view and aspect into the profession. And I always love that because I think it helps only proliferate the thinking and, uh, uh, and the growth of the profession. Um, well, so. you know, and we could be doing that with undergraduates who are um, directly entering in nursing. The reason, so part of our problem, and we're not the only ones, two things I want to say about silos. The other thing that nurses don't realize is how incredibly knowledgeable they are. So I was talking about all this stuff, but nurses in general are very knowledgeable, but because they're siloed, we are sort of, we don't realize how we stack up against other professions. But once you start working with them, you go, you don't know that. <laughs> you don't know how to think that way. You know, we have a lot to offer. And we know that the more we're exposed to other people. But I want to go to the other thing you were talking about, the, the um, non-traditional student. The reason nursing came to the academy was to get an education. And it was to get a liberal arts education, right, as a foundation for what nursing is. Too often, our approach to it is, okay, hurry up and get that out of the way so you can get to what's important in nursing. And we have not socialized nursing faculty how to build on that liberal education. Why? Why do you go to museums? Why do you go to uh, concerts? Why do you do that? Because that's how you learn about human beings and the quality of life. And when you're caring for patients, how do they live their lives and how can they enrich their lives and how do you do that? You know, I had a student say to me, I'd, she was doing something big and I saw it and I, she sent an email to a group of people, but I emailed her and said, I'm so glad to see you're doing this. And she emailed me. She said, I always remember you. She said, you're one of the professors who opened my eyes. And I said, how? And she said, I, she said, well, there are a lot of ways, but I remember this one. I was in the parking lot and she was going to her car and I rolled the window down. I said, come, listen to this, come. And she came over and I was listening to Edith Piaf. And I said, listen to this. She's singing in French, of course, which I don't speak. But she said it was little things like that that kept opening my mind to the experience that enriches how I work with patients. They also, the FNP students always say, you know, not a day, not a week goes by that I don't think of something you say. And I go, oh, good grief. What did I say that you're still remembering? <laughs> and one of them was, it ain't rocket science. It's primary care. <laughs> you can do this. Um, very true. Very true. Um, but but that's amazing. And I, and uh, I think from a so many uh, faculty get so uh, sort of uh, they put blinders on because of regulatory like like national standard requirements to pass tests i think there's they become so test focused that they forget about the humanity part of nursing where there's other experiences that can provide the same level of experience and education that we just often just don't think about it because we're repeating things that are that have been shown to us that have been taught to us and we're just in repeat mode 
uh, right? Two, so yeah, two things. One is when I say that is for faculty to bring them their whole selves too. What is the music they like, the literature they like, all that kind of thing? And then my sister was a third grade teacher, so as you're talking about the testing, and she was she's in Texas, <laughs> where they really control what they teach. And she said, and those of us who teach, we say to them, you're worried about them passing the test. But if you let us teach, they will learn and think, and they'll be able to take the test. And so in nursing, one of the things is, we're, do, we're so concerned about them passing the test. If you help them learn how to think as a nurse and think through that, they're going to pass the blasted test. Right, right. You just have to give give them give the tools. They're very yes. capable of, of doing that. Actually, you, when you said music, I remember I, I, I didn't do very well in, in, in junior high school and high school. Um, I was not the best student. Um, so if any of my counselors ever saw me as PhD after my name, they'd like have a heart attack. <laughs> uh, so, but, but it's very interesting you bring that up because I had a teacher, I was going to summer school to make up some credits. And I think it was like, a, I don't know if it was history or math or something like that. But the teacher brought her banjo to the class <laughs> and she would play and she was a young, young teacher, probably in her 20s, but she was learning how to play the banjo. And every week we'd go in and she uh, she would play like a little snippet of what she had learned for us. Completely off topic, but it made the class enjoyable. It made us look forward to going to it. Uh, so so there's a lot of there's a lot of richness when you see it, when you say faculty bring their whole selves to the class. And, and it, it, it opens up the doors for the students to bring their whole selves to the class as well. Yeah, you don't have to act like a nursing faculty, you know. So when I went into nursing, I'd had eight years of piano lessons. And as I went into the university, I quit taking piano. <clears throat> and I'm naturally an artist. I can draw, I can paint, I can sculpt without, without being trained to do that. <clears throat> but when I got to nursing, I quit doing it. And it's only now I'm beginning to go, well, where did I get the idea that I had to make a choice? Right. And I think if faculty begin to, you know, and then the other thing is that the way we teach, we're OCD about it. They got to know this. They got to know this. They got to know this. They can't know all of that. What do they need to give care and to be successful in the exam? And most of this, a lot of stuff we teach is a lot of nitpicky. I remember going past the classroom, not here, but at another university, and the faculty member was teaching in painful detail how to give a sub-Q in injection. I'm going, you just need to say what it is. They can go practice it over here and see what it is, but why are you wasting your time doing that? The other thing is, why are you wasting your time lecturing for three hours? And I always, I don't know if this is true, but my impression is that it's because people are afraid a student's gonna ask a question they can't answer. And I would always go, I don't know the answer to that. Close your book, let's think it through. Right. And then you get to the end and go, that's a reasonable answer. Look it up. Did right. Are we on target or are we not? Because that's what you have to do in practice. So, you know, yeah. well, but you got to have fun with it. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I always tell my students that like, I'm here to facilitate the education process with you, not here to lecture. So uh, especially I don't use a lot of PowerPoints in my lectures no. or um, like if I do is because I'm trying to show a graph or I have something visual I'm trying to show them and it drives some of them nuts because we've conditioned them to get PowerPoint slides, read the PowerPoint slides, 
and, and then they don't know how to take notes and and they don't know how to take notes uh so uh so i, I appreciate that but um, we should and the other thing i would say the other reason to be in the academy is to continue learning and we can learn from our students absolutely 100% 100% i i i'm i agree with that wholeheartedly um uh, I want to talk about uh, the, some of your work now. Uh, you've had multiple leadership roles, uh, and I want to touch uh, touch on that really quickly if we can. Yep. Um, what made you decide that leadership at any level was something you were going to decide to step into and lead that work? Well, it's an interesting question because the decision wasn't proactive. <laughs> The opportunity came and I was like, oh, that's what I'm doing next. So, and that's why I say I've never had a plan. I never planned a career. Uh, I remember we used to think about our colleagues who were going back to school to become a dean and we would all think, and you're the last person who should become a dean. <laughs> but but um, so, you know, if I look back at my career experiences, it would be an opportunity showed up. And I was like, oh, that's that's the next thing to do because I can do this when I do it. Um, I became a public health nurse because I loved it when I was in, in school. And it wasn't that I didn't like hospital nursing, but I came through at a time that when I went into the hospital, I couldn't do what I was educated to do as a nurse. It was all about getting the tasks done. And so in public health, I could do that. You know, you had your own caseload, you could set up your own schedule. It was a much more professional way of, of doing it. And I was going to become a clinical nurse specialist because we had home health and it became known around the department. So the P, the nurse practitioners were there. We had a, two pediatric nurse practitioners and two family planning nurse practitioners. That's how old I am. They don't have those anymore. But they came to me separately and said, we heard you're going to be a CNS. Why are you going to do that? And I said, oh, because blah, blah, blah. And they each of them said to me, don't do that. You should become a nurse practitioner. And because of what you don't want to do, don't do what we do did. You should become a family nurse practitioner. I never heard of it before. So I went to Vanderbilt. I went into the prison system because when I finished, they said, if you'd like to hire, if you'd like to work here, they'd like to hire you. I ended up as the first chief nursing officer because the first non-physician director of health services was trying to do something in the system. And he graduated from Vanderbilt the year before I did. So it was another FNP. He says, I'm bringing you down to be chief nursing officer. He said, I tried not to do that because everybody knows that we're friends, but there's nobody else who can do it. So all of these things just came as opportunities because people would say, oh, you could do this. And then they'd have to talk me into it. So, you know, I even ended up as a dean because um, people kept saying, and I think I'd interviewed twice because people say, you need to interview this. And I'm thinking, why? <laughs> that didn't go well. And so when I interviewed here, um, I just sort of did it, you know, um, and if I hadn't been relaxed and if I hadn't been in five years of psychotherapy, <laughs> it wouldn't have been helpful. I was in psychotherapy because I said, I keep thinking I'm shooting myself in the foot um, and I wasn't, but, you know, but it, but it made me relax and go, okay, this looks like an opportunity. It was a great fit because land-grant universities are set up to serve 
not just to educate the population, but to serve the citizens. So that really made meant something to me. But I I should say I don't think it's a I don't think it's inappropriate to try to plan your career goals and where you want to go and all that. I just didn't do it. <laughs> so I you know, everything I've done, I'd go, how'd you get here? <laughs> But but I think it's important. Uh, um, you know, I, I always tell people they should have they should have goals in place uh, and be prepared for when the opportunity is yeah. available. One of the reasons I I and I think I've said this on the show before. One of the reasons I've uh, I've um, I went for my PhD and got my PhD because I never wanted to be in a position where an opportunity opened up mm -hmm. and my degree was going to be my barrier to getting that into that getting that opportunity. Um, so. Well, that's interesting because I, I got the PhD, but I was planning to go work in corporate health and do health promotion programs yeah. and all of that. But my all of my colleagues were academics, so I ended up that way. But um, I should clarify by goals. So I don't mean the very specific goals that most people have. My goal was I went into nursing. How will I be able to serve? Mm. And so if it's a change in how I'm serving and I can see the opportunity, I do it. Right. My goals weren't to be this kind of nurse, this kind of practitioner, this kind of academic administrator. And those were none of my goals. My goals were, oh, here's what I want to do. And this is, looks like an opportunity to do it in a different way. Yeah. And that way, I think it leaves you really open and really leaves you open to opportunities that would never have occurred to you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, thank you. I appreciate this. Um, um, I want to be cognizant of your time. Um, anything else you want to share before we sign off? You know, um, so I'm uh, one of the things I really have been thinking about, I think, in this, because it's... Um, it says our and mentor, and I'm doing uh, executive coaching and realize that I do a lot of coach. I've done a lot of coaching all along. And I guess the difference I see is mentoring is really help mentoring people to achieve in a certain role. Coaching is about achieving as yourself, wherever you are. But I think the way that you're asking questions and that the way that I've heard some of some of the ones that I've heard talk, it really is that larger role of coaching for success as a nurse, not mentored for a specific role. And one of the key pieces I think about that, and I think I was naturally like this as a child, but because I went through religious education, one of the things is really to know yourself, to know what thoughts are going on in your mind that are getting in your way, and um, so the big thing I've been looking at is uh, the person who wrote A Stroke of Insight, Jill Bolte Taylor, who had a stroke and is a brain scientist. We get in our heads. And one of the things she talks about is right brain, left brain. And we don't understand them exactly because the left brain is both thinking and feeling. The right brain is both thinking and feeling. The right brain is all about being in the now. The left brain is the one that goes, oh, you got to fight, you got to run or play dead. It's all about protecting you. And so she talks about our thoughts. And I, I want to leave this because I think this is something that I've found out. 
we get hung up on our thoughts. Guess how long they last physiologically? 90 seconds. Wow. The reason it seems like they last longer is because our left brain gets a hold of them and starts dragging it to death and all that <laughs> kind of stuff and can't let it go. And the thing I've learned to do is meditation and mindfulness, or some mm. people may call it prayer and prayerfulness, helps you live in the moment, not hang on to the past, not hang on to the future, live in this moment. And I think it's what we have to do when we're working with students when we're working with colleagues, when we're working with patients, all of that. You know, when we're fearful, we want to control. And we can't control anything. Right. We can help people grow and facilitate in the moment that we're growing and facilitating. So that's not exactly nursing and all of that, but I think it's a key point to be effect being effective no matter what role we're doing in nursing. So that's the last thing I would leave. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, I Thank greatly, you so much for this. Uh, I appreciate you making the time to be on the show. Uh, and uh, and hopefully we'll, uh, we had an opportunity to meet last year and I yeah. hope uh, we have more opportunities to connect. Uh, yes, so me too. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. And we have been listening to Dr. Randolph Rash. Um, and I am uh, so excited to bring more incredible guests for you uh, this season. Uh, so stay tuned and we will catch you on the next show. Have a great one. You've been listening to the RN Mentor with your host, Ali Taya. Please don't forget to visit www.aliartayeb.com. That's www.aliartayeb.com for podcast notes and resources. And don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, I wish you fair winds and following seas.